passage this morning comes from Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, how many of you have ever gotten a spam email? You know, the kind of email requesting your bank account number in exchange for a million dollar deposit, or claiming you've won a four month cruise around the world. You just need to provide your social security number. I'm sure most of us have responded to those, or have received those emails, but how many of you have ever responded to those emails? Don't admit it if you have. But James Veach has. Uh, Veach is a British comedian, and in one of his TED Talks, he chronicles an email exchange he shared with a spammer trying to arrange a shipment of diamonds to him. Some of you are laughing because you've seen this. You should go home and watch it this afternoon. Uh, It's a humorous chain of emails, but as Veach presses the spammer and digs deeper, pleading innocence, he begins to turn the tables on the spammer. See, for most of us, spam emails are a nuisance. They annoy us. They keep coming, and we just want them to stop. Praise God for Gmail spam folders, right? But as Veach keeps emailing this one spammer with all these questions about this diamond shipment, uh, the spammer finally gets so frustrated that he sends an email that just says, please stop emailing us. (laughs) The tables had turned. The spammer became the one who asked for no more emails. What had started as a spam email preying on a somewhat naive person turned into the spammer himself begging for no more communication. The tables had turned. And we're all familiar with that kind of plot, right? So stories and movies are full of that plot twist where everything turns on its head, where everything changes. This morning we come again to the book of Exodus. And here at the beginning of chapter 2, we see a classic turning of the tables story right from the pages of scripture. Except here, it's really no laughing matter. See, at the end of chapter one, Pharaoh had become so fearful of the spread of the Israelite slaves in his land that he had given that terribly evil order to his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. 
Pharaoh had resorted to a kind of genocide to wiping out any threat the Israelites could pose to his rule. So how would the God of Israel respond to that? As we saw last week, the Israelites, as Pharaoh tried even harder to oppress them, they just increased in number. But would, would this time be different? I mean, would this horrible infanticide kind of be the final death knell to God's promise to save his people? Well, Amy just read this passage for us. From that passage, let's look at two things this morning. First, let's see an uncertain fate. An uncertain fate. And then let's see an unexpected deliverer. An unexpected deliverer. So first, an uncertain fate. And here we transition from chapter 1, which viewed the Israelite situation in Egypt as a whole, and we sort of zoom in to the situation of the single Israelite family. So the movie camera has stopped panning from 5,000 feet and has dropped down and focused in on this single Levite couple. And against the backdrop of Pharaoh's heinous command, these first two verses present a setting that is both wonderful and terrible. Verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman the woman conceived and bore a son. Wonderful news, right? Throw a shower. You have a baby. Oh, but wait. No, actually the worst thing has happened. It's a boy. It's a boy born under the fateful edict of the wicked Pharaoh. It's a boy who before he even breathes a breath is sentenced to death. What will happen? Verse 2 continues. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So not only was this child a boy, it was worse enough, he was a fine boy. He was beautiful. He was healthy. And so his mother, who we learn later in Exodus, is named Jochebed, works hard to conceal him. And she does so successfully for three whole months. Can you imagine what awful months those must have been? I mean, as her son became older and more precious, she must have realized more and more plainly that something needed to be done or he would not survive. And at that moment, uh, at that, that moment of doing something more comes in verse three. It says, when she could hide him no longer. So by this point, the boy must have grown more active and louder. Parents, you can understand that, right? Three months it's harder to conceal him and keep him quiet. So verse 3, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us Jochebed's motive for this tactic. What's her plan? Perhaps, perhaps she's just at a loss and doesn't know what else to do. Perhaps... She trusts that God will deliver him and entrusts him to the river and to the Lord. But whatever the case, we do know that she did not fear Pharaoh. Hebrews chapter 11. We read that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Reminds us of the midwives last week, right? 
who would not fear Pharaoh more than God, who would not fear the destroyer of life over the giver of life. Church, fear of God is not just a theological abstraction. It leads to action. It leads to boldness. Jochebed feared God more than Pharaoh. But she takes desperate measures. So she hides Moses in this makeshift basket in the reeds by the Nile. And, and, and Christian, if you've grown up hearing Sunday school stories and coloring Bible pictures, praise God for that. That's his grace to you that you heard the words of truth of the gospel from a young age. But just put aside those visions of this sort of cute and smiling Moses in an Ikea tote in the middle of you know, the Mississippi for a second and realize how gut-wrenching these first four verses are. This is traumatic. This is horrible. This is the part of the movie where we cover our eyes and holler at the TV screen. I mean, could God be at work in even something this awful? This hellish. Sir, sure, he could help them as they were slaves and burdened down by Pharaoh's uh, minions, but genocide? Church, the stakes get even higher than that. They get even higher than the life of a small boy, even though that's important, of course, to God. No, as we zoom out and get the big picture of Pharaoh's command to kill these Israelite boys, we see an even greater reality at work. So remember what Megan read for us at the beginning of our service from Genesis 3. So remember, after Adam and Eve sinned, God punished them for their rebellion. He drove them out of the Garden of Eden, but in his grace, he promised that in the future, a child would be born who would crush the head of Satan, who would bring salvation for mankind. And as we continue in Genesis, we see that God determines to bring this child to life through the family of Abraham, through the children of Israel. Through that family, God will bless the world. He will bring his Savior. So the stakes are really high here. Pharaoh's genocidal rage against the Israelites is not just the markings of a hate-filled maniac to destroy God's people, but it's, it's the markings of Satan's opposition to God himself. Satan's desire to destroy God's people before a savior could come. Because he knew when that savior came, the final nails would be driven into his coffin. And so in verse four, we see this kind of cosmic cliffhanger, don't we? Jochebed doesn't know it, but this little boy will be the man God calls to lead his people out of Egypt. But here he is afloat in the Nile. Would God's plan be ruined before it even got off the ground? Would the devil rule the day? Well, Miriam, the older sister, waits at a distance. The basket rises up and down in the river waters. The baby cries. And as we leave verse four, those final six words ring in our ears. What would be done to him? Miriam didn't know. Jochebed didn't know. But church, God knew. God was at work even in the desperate despair of this Israelite family. 
he would fulfill his promise to save. He would be faithful to his covenant. He would rescue. Brothers and sisters, see here again the character of God. You know, we can often take God and make him much like ourselves, can't we? We can think of God kind of like Miriam in the story, kind of looking on, wringing his hands, hoping against hope that his plan will work. And even if we say that, that's silly. God is sovereign, of course. We still struggle to believe that for our own. I say, yeah, it worked for Moses. I don't know if it's going to work for me. Is God's plan going to come through? Is he good? Is he in control of my life? Church, remember the words of Martin Luther to Erasmus when he said, your thoughts of God are too human. God is not like us. He is totally above, totally separate, totally different, totally sovereign. He does not wait to see what will be done, like Miriam, like us. No, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows the big picture, and he knows the intimate details of our lives. God is sovereign. I know we talked about that last week a lot, but get ready, folks. We're going to see this truth come up again and again throughout Exodus. God is sovereign. And if you're anything like me, you need to hear that again this week. Last Sunday wasn't enough. Because we so often forget and become anxious, desperately trying to take control of our situations. We think God is much like us. Praise him, he's not. He's overseeing it all. So as we stoop and peer down this cliffhanger, let's move on to verse five and see our second point, an unexpected deliverer. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. Do you sense the, the mounting drama here at church? So Jochebed has sort of obeyed Pharaoh, hasn't she? She kind of, you know, in some ways threw her child into the Nile. She just provided a little boat for him, right? She's put her child in the Nile. She's by faith hidden him for three months. But now what's going to happen? Lo and behold, here comes the daughter of Pharaoh. She comes to the exact spot where Moses is concealed and she sees the basket and she calls for it and she opens it. You can imagine Miriam catching her breath as she watched from afar. This was the very daughter of the man who had given the evil edict to kill. This was the very daughter of the man who opposed God's people, resting her hands on the basket that held the future deliverer of Israel. Would she follow her father's command? Would she honor his law? Verse 6. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. You can hear the compassion in her voice, can't you? She's not ignorant as to who this baby is. 
She's not ignorant as to her father's command, but her heart is melted by the sight of this three-month-old and the sound of his cries. Her motherly instincts are touched. Enter Miriam. I mean, how wise is Miriam, church? How courageous is Miriam? She approaches Pharaoh's daughter and proposes an idea. Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? So Pharaoh's daughter had found the baby, right? But not much could be done unless a nurse was brought in to supply the baby with nourishment, right? If that didn't happen, all this was death anyway. So here's Miriam's opportunity and she seizes it. And Pharaoh's daughter agrees completely. She says, go do that in verse eight. And guess who Miriam brings back? but Moses' mother him herself. I mean, brilliant, Miriam, brilliant. I mean, can you imagine Jochebed's joy? She must have been in her home, struggling with despair. She must have been praying as she considered the future of her dear son. But then Miriam comes, not with sort of soul-crushing news that she might have feared would be the case, but with this amazing turn of events. Mother, come see your son. He's been saved by the king. It was as if she received Moses back from the dead to love and to nourish again and all under the protection of the very daughter of Pharaoh. Church, the irony here is rich. The tables have turned. It's as if God is showing Pharaoh that he could try and try and try and try to stop Israel from multiplying. He could weigh them down with heavy burdens. He could command the midwives to murder their sons. He could tell his whole nation to throw them into the Nile. But God, the true sovereign one, would deliver. And not just deliver, but raise up a deliverer right from under Pharaoh's nose right from under his own household. Take that, Pharaoh. Take that, Satan. Your plans to exterminate God's people and get victory for yourself fails again. Congratulations. God always wins. God always has the victory. There in verse nine, we see the irony deepen as Pharaoh's daughter promises compensation for Jochebed to take care of her own baby. I mean, Pharaoh's household would pay God's people to raise up a leader to destroy them. Do you see the irony? Do you see the sovereignty of God? Do you see what an unexpected deliverer he had raised up for his people? One commentator, Alec Motier, writes, what a turnaround. Far from this Hebrew baby being killed by the will of the royal house, his rescuer emerged from the royal house. Even Pharaoh's house is changed from destroyer to savior. God always wins. Well, in verse 10, we see Moses grows older. He's eventually weaned and handed back over to Pharaoh's daughter. She adopts him as her own son. She gives him the name Moses. We're not exactly sure the origin of that name, but we do know there in verse 10 that it sounds like the Hebrew word for to draw out. That's appropriate. Moses had been drawn out of the water and he would eventually draw God's people out from slavery. What had Pharaoh done? He'd messed up again. 
God's plan is marching forward. And church, Moses would be the one to deliver God's people out of slavery. But he wouldn't be the one to finally crush the devil's head. He would be the savior of God's people, but he would not be the final fulfillment of that promise of God to bless the world through Israel. Now the birth and deliverance of baby Moses here foreshadows the birth and deliverance of another deliverer, a greater deliverer. Just like Moses, that deliverer's life would be in danger from the command of a cruel monarch to kill all the infants in the kingdom. Just like Moses, that deliverer's family would find refuge in Egypt. Just like Moses, that deliverer would be spared death. Remember the passage Lee read for us earlier from Matthew 2. There we we saw Mary and Joseph and their baby Jesus under threat from a tyrannical ruler who feared his power would be taken away from him. Jesus' life was threatened before it barely even started. Satan's at it again. But God's plan would not be threatened. Jesus would be spared. Jesus is the greater Moses. But that's where the similarities end between the two, friends. Because unlike Moses, Jesus would be spared only for a time. But he ultimately came to die under the wrath of God. Unlike Moses, Jesus would not be ultimately delivered, but would be scorned by his enemies, nailed to a cross, judged by God. Unlike Moses, Jesus would be cast into the great Nile of God's judgment and would lay down his life so God's people could go free. As the author of Hebrews puts it, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Church Moses here points us to Christ the final savior. 1,400 years before Jesus would even come on the scene, God was giving his people a teaser trailer, wasn't he? Because eventually he would bring a greater deliverer. He would bring a mightier prophet. He would bring a perfect king. Church, this is our God. This is our gracious God who has planned to bring salvation to us through the death of his son. Listen to this news, church. God is holy, and he made us to be holy. He made us to bring him glory in this world, but each one of us has said no to that. We have turned our backs on him and decided instead to live for ourselves, for our own glory. We have sinned in countless ways, and each of those sins has racked up to provide insurmountable evidence of our guilt before the judge. We've rebelled against him. We deserve his judgment. And he's no human judge to sort of just pass that over. No, he's a divinely perfect judge. And he will condemn every last wicked thought. But the great news of the gospel is that when we were in that terrible situation, God had mercy on us. God sent his son, his only son, his only beloved son to live a perfect life and then die in the place of sinners. 
Jesus, the king of the universe, took on flesh as a weak child born in a manger. And though Moses was spared, Jesus would not be. He would grow with his eyes set on the cross as his final destination. He would be punished by God for every sin you and I would commit if we repent and trust in him. You know, a lot of people would hear that and say, wow, God must be some sicko tyrant to demand the death of his son. But church, as the redeemed, we say the exact opposite. Wow, we must be such sick sinners that our salvation costs the very death of God's son. Wow, God must be so incredibly gracious to pay that cost for us. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's the gospel message. Repent and believe. Turn to him today. If you have questions about that, we'd love to talk to you about that more. You can talk to someone sitting next to you or talk to me after the service. We'd love to tell you more about how to trust in Christ as your only hope. And church, in this brief story of God's sovereign turning of the tables on Pharaoh, do you see a hint of God's sovereign, even greater turning of the tables on Satan and the cross of Christ? I mean, see, when Satan thought he had finally won, when he had nailed the very son of God to the cross, when that dark day had come, God had the victory. What Satan thought was the funeral service of God's plan was actually the beginning of it. Salvation going out to the entire world. On the cross, Jesus defeated our sin and our death and our enemy once and for all forever. Church, behold your Savior. Behold this wonderful Jesus laying down his life for you and for me, rising in power over the grave. J.L. Reynolds puts it this way. When Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate, the remarkable words, I am a king. He pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting him with a crown of thorns a reed and a purple robe and nailing him to a cross. But in the eyes of his people, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was a symbol of unbounded power. And that cross, the throne of dominion, which shall never end. God always wins. Let's pray. God, we praise you that your plan never fails.
me praise you that the cross, when it seemed to be the end, was instead the announcement that salvation had come. That your king would be bruised in his heel, but that he would bruise the head of Satan forever. Lord, we pray that as a church family, we would simply be reminded this morning of how glorious Jesus is and how marvelous your plan is to save. Lord, who are we that you've shown us such amazing mercy? So encourage our hearts, Holy Spirit, as we sing your praises now. Amen.